This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Good morning. Today we reach, uh, as Howard said, the end of the book of Acts. We're looking at the last six chapters, roughly the final fifth of the book. And the story we read today is Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. For a long time, Paul has aspired to travel to Rome. There's a small church there that Paul wants to visit, but more importantly, Rome is a strategic location for Paul's mission to the Gentiles. In the first century, Paul, sorry, in the first century, Rome was the largest city in the world. It had a million people at a time when 10,000 people in one place was considered a large city. Paul's desire is to bring the message of Jesus to the farthest parts of the world. He knows that if he can take his message of the gospel to the heart of Roman civilization, it will go out from there to the whole of the empire. Last week, Christopher talked about how Paul uh, traveled to Jerusalem, bringing with him financial contributions from all the churches that he'd been planting around Asia Minor and Greece to support the Jerusalem church. Christopher spoke how in Jerusalem, Paul is attacked by a Jewish mob and rescued from the crowd by Roman soldiers, and he lands himself in their custody. Today, we pick up the story from that point. Paul begins under arrest in Jerusalem. As we're covering six chapters, and it would take half an hour to read, here's my three-minute summary of Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome, where the book ends with Paul under house arrest. Strap in, because lots happens, and I apologize that I'm going to have to skip over many of the details, though later we will read a few specific passages. Here we go. For the remainder of his journey, Paul is held by the Roman justice system. He's put on trial multiple times and by different people, and as he is passed from one court and one judge to another, a pattern emerges. Four times the following happens in the next six chapters. Paul is put before a court. His accusers bring charges. None of the charges stick. But such a fuss is made about Paul that the authorities don't want to release him. So he remains in their custody. The first trial is in Jerusalem before the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. The Sadducees and Pharisees end up fighting between themselves when Paul mentions the resurrection. And they can't decide what to do with him. Following that trial, Roman soldiers hear of a plot to assassinate Paul. So they transfer him to the city of Caesarea to be tried by the Roman court there. In Caesarea, Felix, the governor, hears the case. But he also can't decide what to do with Paul, so leaves him in prison, where he remains for two years. Festus, the successor of Felix, also a governor, puts Paul on trial again. Festus also can't decide what to do. Paul is probably fed up by this point. So he asks Festus that he would like to invoke his right as a Roman citizen to have his case heard by the emperor in Rome. He appeals to Caesar. So Festus holds yet another trial, this time with the help of King 
the Jewish king, Herod Agrippa. And together, Festus and Herod Agrippa decide that although Paul is actually most likely innocent, although they could let him go, there's too much of a fuss made about him. So they grant Paul's wish, and he is sent by ship to Rome for the emperor to hear his case. And so Paul begins his journey to Rome under custody. A centurion takes him by sea to see, from Caesarea, heading west to Rome. But on the way, the ship gets caught up in a storm. The boat is shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Paul gets bitten by a snake. Performs, he performs miraculous healings, but still he remains in custody. And the journey continues. As the journey continues on from Malta, after some more time at sea, Paul finally arrives in Rome. Once there, Paul is kept under house arrest with a guard posted with him at all times. And that is where Acts ends. Three years after Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, Paul's still a prisoner and still waiting his final trial before the emperor. That's six chapters in a nutshell. I'll be dipping in and out of various parts of Paul's journey this morning, but I've had to skip over large amounts, so I do encourage you to go back and read it through for yourself. Today, I want to pick out just three themes that will become apparent as we follow Paul on his journey. But first, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the life of the early church and for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Give us open ears and soft hearts to hear what you are speaking to us through their story today. And Lord, would you stir up a passion for your gospel in God first in Chelman this morning. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> At the beginning of Acts, we're reminded that as we read about the mission, life, and growth of the earliest churches, this is volume two of a two-part story. The first installment was the gospel according to Luke telling of Jesus' birth, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And by the time we have followed the full narrative arc of the second installment, when Acts has taken us from Jesus' ascension in Jerusalem to Paul's arrival in Rome, we begin to gather a sense of deja vu. The shape and the ministry of the mission of the church after Easter is strikingly similar to the shape of Jesus' ministry and his mission before Easter. The first theme we're going to look at today is this. The story, of Jesus, the story of Jesus in Luke develops a certain pattern, and the story of the early church in Acts developed the same pattern. Both Luke and Acts begin with the anointing of the Spirit for Jesus at his baptism for the church at Pentecost. Both Jesus and the apostles first proclaim publicly the message Alongside it, there are miracles and initial ministry success. The initial success of the gospel in both books is followed by gathering storm clouds of opposition. Each has an extensive travel narrative and a final return to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, first Jesus and later Paul are arrested and each face four trials. Both are brought before the Jewish council twice before Roman governors, and once before the Judean king. In both the book of Luke and the book of Acts, the accused is declared innocent, but remains in chains. And obviously there's a danger of over-reading the parallel. Paul is not Jesus, 
At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus is crucified and rises again, and that's not what happens in Acts, where Paul continues his journey from Jerusalem to Rome, and where the book ends with him under house arrest, but free to preach the good news to all who will listen. However, that pattern, where the early church's life mirrors Jesus' ministry, where what happens to Jesus is repeated and continued in the church, is evident right throughout the book of Acts. When Paul is declared innocent by King Herod Agrippa, the trial mimics Jesus' trial before Herod Antipas at the end of Luke's gospel. They're not the same person, but they have the, names, the same name, and the similarity is stark. And the point is this. Jesus' ministry did not end at his death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus continues his mission in and through the church. And as that happens, the life of the church begins to look like the life of Jesus. Jesus teaches in Judea. The apostles take his teaching out into the Roman Empire. Jesus performs miracles by his own power. The apostles perform miracles by the power of his spirit. Jesus preaches prophesying in advance his impending death and resurrection. The apostles preach, testifying afterwards to the crucified and risen Jesus. The life of the early church, though different to Jesus' life, resounds with echoes of his ministry. And it's worth noting that although Jesus did not walk physically with his disciples, he is with us by his, uh, sorry, does not today walk physically with us, his disciples. He is with us by his spirit. When Jesus moved from one place to another in 30 AD, he preached, he taught, he healed, he performed numerous miracles, but his mission was constrained geographically. When I visit my brother in Nottingham, I travel further from Cheltenham than Jesus traveled from his hometown in Nazareth during his entire adult life. Jesus spent his whole ministry in roughly a hundred mile radius. If you lived in France or China or Egypt in the first century, you're unlikely to have known there was a person called Jesus who traveled from town to town teaching about the kingdom of God. And because Jesus' human body limited him geographically, he sent his spirit. That's what Jesus says at the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The geographical constraint is lifted. The gospel is free by the Spirit to reach the very ends of the earth. Throughout Acts, we have seen the gospel expand moving out from Jerusalem, drawing people in from every tongue, tribe, and nation. By the end of Acts, the gospel has reached Rome. Paul arrives at the center of civilization, the heart of the largest city in the world, the middle of the Roman Empire. We all know the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. But of course, the opposite is also true. All roads lead out from Rome too. If the gospel can reach Rome, it can go out from there to the ends of the earth. And it is here that Paul passes the baton to us. One group of churches even call themselves Acts 29. There is no Acts 29. They are saying, we are continuing the mission of the church in the power of the Spirit, following on from the first apostles. The church is challenged to go out from Rome, to take the presence of Jesus by the Spirit to the farthest ends of the world, to cities in Spain and Egypt, 
and even to the furthest northern islands on the outskirts of the empire, where one day Christians will meet freely in school halls to worship Jesus. I don't know if you've heard of a place called Finisterre. It's a peninsula on the westernmost point of Spain. It looks out upon the vast Atlantic Ocean. And the meaning of the name Finisterre is quite literally ends of the earth. You can see it there in the word Finis, end, and terra, earth. We know that across the Atlantic, eventually you reach the Americas, but to the Roman world, remote Finisterre jutting out into the Atlantic Ocean was the furthest west it went. The furthest north the Roman Empire went was to the north of England. The ends of the earth, as far as the Roman Empire was concerned, was pretty close to where I grew up in Durham. We aren't too far from the outskirts of the Roman Empire here in Cheltenham. Jesus' spirit is with us today, three and a half thousand miles from Judea, 2,000 years later. Like the disciples, we walk in the presence of Jesus. And as we go, we have the example set by Jesus in his earthly life to follow. In Acts, when we read of the early church casting out demons, preaching the kingdom of God, and healing the sick, they are treading the road that Jesus first walked. When the apostles welcome the rejected and despised, it's because they follow Jesus, who dined with tax collectors and outcasts. In the passage we read today, when Paul is caught up in a storm on the way to Rome, he takes a moment to break bread and to thank God. Paul is imitating Jesus, who broke bread on the night he was betrayed. With the disciples and the apostles before us, we, the church, are to live out the template set by Jesus' life and ministry. We are to feed the hungry as we remember Jesus, who fed the 5,000. When we seek to walk in righteousness and holy, it's because Jesus first lived the perfect and blameless life. Jesus' life paints a vision for the church. And it is this vision of the church that we are to take to the ends of the earth. In the UK, the tide is on its way out for established Christianity. Being a Christian is no longer the cultural norm. We need to rediscover the vision of the church in Acts. For the first time in more than a thousand years, we find ourselves in a similar position to Paul, for whom the world had no understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. We are to live as a people who imitate Jesus in his servanthood and humility, but also his righteousness and power. And as we do, our lives will take on the shape of Jesus' life. That's the first theme. The second theme that runs through these final six chapters of Acts is Paul's relationship with the opposition he encounters. Paul spends considerable time at the end of Acts, giving defenses in court. I've picked one of Paul's defenses as we read to uh, to read together. This is Paul's speech before Festus and King Herod Agrippa in Acts 26. Paul starts off by telling his conversion story, which I'm not going to read, in which Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and where Jesus instructs him to tell the Gentiles of the good news of the gospel. And we're reading from just after he's told that story. Acts 26, verse 19. So then, King Herod Agrippa, sorry, King Agrippa, 
It was not disobedient. I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate by their, their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seize me in the temple courts and try to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. I stand here to testify to the small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to raise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. You can travel as a tourist to the place where Paul made this defense. Caesarea is now a large archaeological site, and much of the ancient city has been excavated. Paul's trial was almost certainly held in Herod's palace in Caesarea. It was the center of Roman rule within the province of Judea, just as Tel Aviv, a little along the coast from Caesarea, is the main center of an Israeli administration today. Caesarea is by the sea, and Herod's palace was built out into the ocean. It was a grand building with water on three sides, and it was designed to impress and intimidate all who entered. It displayed and projected the power of Rome and the might of the empire. And we're told that Agrippa came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking official officers and the prominent men of the city. Paul is before the upper echelons of society. He's in the presence of the most powerful people in the province. And with this setting, we're reminded of Jesus' instruction to his disciples in Luke's gospel. Jesus had predicted and he had prepared his disciples for exactly this scenario. Luke 12, and this is Jesus speaking. I tell you, friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. When you are brought before synagogues, Rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. When Paul makes his defense before the Roman authorities in Caesarea, instead of being afraid of the power and the pomp of his listeners, Jesus ta- sorry, Paul takes Jesus' words to heart. I don't know if you've ever been 
at a loss for words in the presence of grandeur or under the spotlight. Comedians with large live audiences love to pick on people in the front row. Howard does the same. <laughs> and with the attention on them, suddenly even the most eloquent appears to stumble over their words and provides good material for the comedian to riff off. That's the intention of the parade surrounding Paul's trial. It would have been easy for Paul to be intimidated by the situation. But for Paul, he doesn't stutter or stumble over his words. He boldly speaks out in both, the defense of, in both his defense and in the defense of the gospel. Perhaps when we are asked questions about our faith in much less intimidating surroundings, we find we are not like Paul in our speech. When a friend, a neighbor, or a colleague asks us about church or about what we believe in God, do we find we freeze and stumble over our words? We're not in a grand audience chamber, on trial, at risk of death from the judgment we receive. But are we afraid of the consequences of the words we say in defense of our faith? Are we worried we'll be judged, spoken about, or rejected if we boldly state what we believe? Two things that Jesus says about speaking boldly are right there in Paul's speech. The first is that Paul is not afraid of the consequences of the court. Paul is not worried that he might die if he says the wrong thing. And the logic for why is quite simple. The worst that can happen to him is that he's killed. The most the Romans can do is put him to death and that might seem very bad. <laughs> Except that the message that Paul preaches is resurrection from the dead. Paul believes his message through and through, the gospel of the risen Jesus, right to his bones. Paul is convinced by the hope of resurrection to eternal life. A friend of my father's was training to be a clergyman in the Church of England, on, and on his first day, he was asked by the rector to put his cassock on and knock on doors of six neighbors and invite them to church. When the trainee clergyman looked back at the rector horrified, he replied that if he's worried, he should read Esther's letter. Slightly uncertain about the book of Esther, he went away and looked it up. Esther writes this, if I die, I die. <laughs> In other words, the rector was saying, it's not that big a deal, get on with it. <laughs> Paul perhaps reads Esther's letter earnestly, but whether Paul dies at the hands of the Romans or of old age, the power that the fear of death holds is broken by the knowledge of the all-surpassing power of God who raises the dead. Physical suffering for the gospel and martyrdom are not to be taken lightly, especially for us who enjoy the easy privileges of liberal democracy and a free society. But these hard things are borne a little more easily by those convinced to the heart of the gospel of the risen Jesus. Do we know to our bones the truth as Paul did? Are we deeply and unapologetically certain of the power of God to raise the dead if we are, we will find that fear slips away when we come to share the gospel with others. Paul knows what he's about. When he's put under pressure, when his life is threatened, 
He need only trust the Holy Spirit and speak with integrity and the message that he believes from his toes to the tops of his, top of his head will flow out from him. In much less trying circumstances, we are also called to dependence on the Spirit and to speak with simple integrity for the sake of the gospel. Second, Jesus is clear that the Spirit will give us the words to say when we are asked to give testimony for the sake of the gospel. Jesus says, Do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. How easy it is to worry about what we'll say before others. I remember the mental anguish and rehearsal as I prepared to invite my friends to to church at university. I would often conclude that someone wasn't in the right place for me to invite them. A friend once spoke to me about God, saying they didn't believe, and I subsequently decided it would be better not to invite them to church just yet, in case it put them off further. Paul is not calculating like this. He speaks by his spirit, trusting that whether the officials before him are convinced or not, God will give him the right words to say. It's a theme we've seen through our acts. When the spirit is poured out, people speak out. At Pentecost, as the spirit descends for the first time, Peter stands up and testifies to the crowds in Jerusalem. 3,000 are saved. Stephen, the first martyr in Acts, is filled with the spirit. He too speaks out in defense of the gospel. We are to trust that when we are asked to speak out for the sake of the gospel, to give testament to the faith we have in Jesus, God will give us the right words by his spirit. 18th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, a good favorite, puts it like this. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it in your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. As Paul speaks boldly to the court, we should pay attention to what happens. Paul's integrity and his spirit-filled message are respected by the Roman officials. They clearly don't agree with him, and they say as much, but they listen. And at the end of the trial, Agrippa and Festus declare that Paul has done nothing to deserve death. When we speak the message of Jesus, often we fear the consequences of rejection or humiliation. I think we'll be surprised that most often, by speaking with integrity and holding out the truth of Jesus with conviction and through his Holy Spirit, we will be respected far more by our friends and neighbors than if we were to speak out in a calculated and timid manner. Finally, we turn to our third theme, the sovereignty of God's mission. Here is what Paul wrote in the letters to the Romans. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and, I, and have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul wrote those words, and as he did, I wonder whether he expected his journey to happen as it did. 
By the time he gets to Rome, he has spent nearly three years in custody. Two years of that rotting in a prison in Caesarea. It's likely that Paul never made it to Spain. We don't know, but we don't have any evidence to suggest he did. When Paul arrives in Rome, under house, he's under house arrest, and he's not free to travel as he wishes. But God still enables the gospel to be proclaimed, just as Paul has de- had desi- desired. The final words of Acts are as follows. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We might have plans for how God will use us in our lives, but we must be open to the means and the method by which God will carry out his will. Perhaps Paul didn't know It was during his time in custody, at a time when he couldn't wander the streets and preach in synagogues and city forums, that Paul's most long-lasting and powerful ministry happened. In prison, in Caesarea, for two years, Paul wrote many of his letters to the churches. These are the letters that make up a large proportion of the New Testament, the ones that we read in our Bible today. For 2,000 years, Paul's letters have taught shaped and encouraged churches around the world, grounding them in the truth and the hope of the gospel. If Paul's journey had not been so full of hiccups and delays, those letters may never have been written. God can use what look like setbacks and hindrances for his glory and for the progression of his kingdom. When we fully appreciate the sovereignty of God to work all things for the good of those who love him, We can trust that whether or not we see the purposes in the events of our lives, God has the power to use us for advancing his kingdom by his own mighty hand. And follow Paul on his journey to Rome, and you can see God's sovereign work in all that he's going through. As he sails to Rome, the ship he is captive on is caught in a storm that lasts two weeks. The winds and the sea are constantly battering and buffeting against the ship. The storm is so violent that the crew are afraid the ship will be torn apart. They tie ropes around under the ship again and again in an attempt to hold the wooden structure together. They throw the cargo of the ship overboard to lighten its load. Paul is vulnerable, he's weak and he's helpless. But in the middle of the storm, Paul has a vision where an angel of God speaks to him. It says this, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you all the lives, given you the lives of all who sail with you. God promises that Paul will reach Rome, that not one of the 276 people on board the boat will die, and that Paul will stand witness to the most powerful ruler in the world. The sailors can't control the ship. In desperation to save the ship, a Roman centurion cuts the lifeboat free to avoid the soldiers deserting. He is not in control. The Roman gods of the sea, displayed on the figurehead of the ship, are not in control. Paul, a captive, Chained and imprisoned on a sinking ship is not in control. 
as we read God's promise to bring Paul safely through the storm, we're reminded that God is in control. We catch just a glimpse of the magnitude of the might of God, and God's sovereignty is made apparent to us. For Paul, this isn't the first time he's come face to face with life-threatening danger. In 2 Corinthians 11, he writes of some of the peril he's encountered. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent in a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and I have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've often gone without food. I've been and naked. At the end of Acts, when Paul's physical freedom is stripped away, we are reminded that although it is Paul who is taking the message of the gospel to Rome, It is God who carries Paul to his destination. Paul may be in chains, but the gospel is not. And whilst we might not understand how it is that God is fulfilling his purposes through us, Paul reminds us that it's our responsibility to get on with ministry in the places God has put us. Once in Rome, we're told that a Roman soldier was sent to guard Paul at all times, and that Paul is bound in chains. And that Greek word for the phrase bound in chains is halusis. And the halusis was a short length of chain which was tied around the wrist of a prisoner and was bound to the wrist of the soldier who was guarding him. Paul, night and day, would have been chained to a Roman soldier, perhaps the emperor's own praetorian guard. Can you imagine being chained to Paul all day. (laughs) He'd be there as Paul taught and preached to those who visited him, as he sang songs and hymns and broke bread with his fellow believers. He'd be there as Paul wrestled with God in prayer. Paul's love for God and God's church would be evident and palpable. I can't imagine for a moment that Paul let the soldiers go quietly ignored beside him. Though Paul is the prisoner, his guards have been provided by God as the captive audience. The Philippians learn that at least, in Philippians, sorry, we learn that at least some of the emperor's guards have been led to the Lord. God used Paul as he went. Whether it was the guard he was chained to or the governors and kings he encountered during his trials, Paul could not help but speak of the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the mission of God is. It's ordinary. It's every day. It's with the people we meet on the journey of our lives. For us, it's not a fellow prisoner and someone we're chained to. It's with our colleagues at work, the neighbors on our street, or a friend down the pub. Just as with Paul, God calls us to speak boldly and without hindrance in the place that God has put us today. It's the ordinary, everyday ministry of doing mission, of speaking for Jesus where God puts us in the course of our daily lives. I was reading the story of a young minister who, whenever he went to a coffee shop, he would ask the barista if they knew there was a God who loved them. He'd make it a regular habit. New coffee shop, 
new barista, new question. And often the server would look back confused or unimpressed. But occasionally, the minister got the opportunity to share the gospel with the person who was serving his coffee. One day, he went to a new coffee shop with a group of church leaders for a meeting. In the queue, with all the ministers, there was a vibrant discussion about the sun theological issue. Everyone was so deeply engrossed in the conversation that they missed the young minister ask his question to the barista, just as he always did. Do you know there's a God who loves you? They didn't hear the young minister as he shared his story with the server. And they didn't see, as right there in the coffee shop, he led the barista to the Lord. It's easy to get caught up and distracted and to miss the opportunities to share the gospel with the people around us. We can spend our time doing more strategizing and planning than speaking of the wonders of God's good news to our neighbors. Maybe speaking to random strangers is too out there for you. Here's a story that's closer to home. When my wife Chloe was at school, she invited a friend to church. An invite, nothing complex. She says she doesn't even remember how she did it. On this occasion, Chloe's friend said yes. None of her friend's family are Christians, but it was a simple invite a friend accepted. And so, 11 years ago, the friend began going to church. And over the years, Chloe's prayed with her, listened to her, and shared the gospel with her. In a month's time, we have the joy and privilege of celebrating with her as she gets baptized. Her life has a new focus and meaning, and her eternity is different, at least in part, because a close teenage friend plucked up the courage to share Jesus with her all that time ago. And in God's good time, and by his grace, her heart is changed. God is at work, and we are invited to be the means of his sovereign work in the world. Paul in Acts cannot help but share the story of Jesus with everyone he encounters, trusting that God's sovereign hand will use him. He declares the good news boldly in the face of intimidation and opposition. And as he does, Paul takes up the mantle of Jesus. Do take some time this week to pick up your Bible and go to the end of Acts and read Paul's journey in these final chapters. As you read, remember these three themes. That God's spirit is working through his church and God is establishing his church in the pattern of Jesus' ministry. That in the face of opposition, God gives us the courage to speak the right words by, and the right words to say by his spirit. And that in God's sovereignty, he uses each one of us right where we are to further the proclamation of his kingdom right here at the ends of the earth. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.